And so I jump up. It's like 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, you've got to be, where is this one coming from? And, uh, and so I go and I grab it. And I'm about to, I figure out, fortunately, that one was not hardwired into the wall. I was able to like take it off and throw it in the garage. And um, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. This has happened twice. And so we get back into the room and, and finally people are back to sleep. And I'm going back to sleep. And then all of a sudden cats start sneezing like crazy. And then all of a sudden she settles down, and then, then I start having a coughing attack, and I'm like, I, don't, I haven't even started been coughing in weeks, and all of a sudden I'm just coughing at everything, and like, again, the heart's just going, and it's just one of these nights, I look over at the clock, and it's like 4 o'clock, 4.45, 5 o'clock, and then you're sitting there kind of going, okay, do I even want to try to go to sleep at this point? Like, it's just going to be harder to wake up if I only get 30 minutes, and you're having all these debates in there. Have you ever had one of those nights when you're just like, you're desperate to find rest. You're doing everything that you possibly can to get a little bit of rest. And no matter how hard you try, you just can't get any rest. Maybe you had that vacation where you're like, aha, we're finally going on vacation, but you brought the kids. <laughs> and you realize, okay, there's a difference between a trip and a vacation. Like a massive, massive difference between those two things right there, right? Like, like rest is one of those things that's just elusive sometimes. No matter how hard you try, you put yourself in a position to get rest so many times, I'm not able to control whether or not I actually feel rested in the end. It doesn't help also that we're living in a world where um, we actually believe that rest is for the, the weak, right? Like we actually believe that, that rest is for the weak. Like it's why we brag about the number of hours that we work in any given week. We're like, hey, like, dude, last week was like 80 to 100 hours. I was just going crazy. I was going nuts. Like, and when we wear it as a badge of honor because I know when I tell you that, like, you're going to respect me all the more for how hard I work. It's like the old Seinfeld episode. You know what I'm talking about? George Costanza. He's figured out, hey, if I act annoyed all the time, then my boss is going to think I'm working really, really hard. And so that's what he does. He goes around the office the whole time, and he's just acting annoyed and aggravated constantly. He's just kind of right there. And, uh, and, and the boss always comes by and he's like, man, that George is such a hard worker. Man, that George, is just, he's just working so hard. He's awesome. And like he gets a raise and he's doing nothing. He's the laziest person on the planet. Um, some of us actually believe that we'll never get to the end and the Lord won't say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, if you actually do stop and take a rest. Um, a good friend of mine a few years back, he, he was actually trying to wean himself off of sleep trying to get down to two to three hours of sleep each night so that he could be more productive in his life. I'm not kidding you. And I remember talking with him, and I was like, I was like, what are you doing? Like, th those bags aren't healthy, right? Eyes aren't supposed to be red. Like, that's, not a healthy, that's not a healthy thing. He's like, Aaron, he's like, I got to do all my work into the Lord. The Lord doesn't sleep. The Lord doesn't sleep. Why would I sleep? And I'm like, there's a massive difference between you and the Lord, right? Like, let me explain this to you. You're in seminary. Like, there's a massive difference between you and God. I, I hope you understand that. Maybe someone needs to hear that this morning. There's a massive difference between you and the Lord. But it's what we do so many times. We actually believe rest is for the weak. And for a lot of us, it's why we walk in here today just tired and exhausted and weary and overwhelmed and overcome so many times. And it's the occasion for this psalm. And the psalmist comes in and he sets up this contrast between two different kinds of believers. And I want you to notice these are two different kinds of believers in this text. One set of believers have, have uh, well, on the one hand, you've got a, a set of believers who have never entered into his rest. That's what he talks about in verse 11. These are people that are still saved, but they've, they're always in a state of restlessness and wandering. On the other hand, in this psalm, you've got this group of people, they've entered into his rest and so they're full of gratitude and joy. There's so much singing going on, and it's not so much that they don't have the same difficulties or the same stressors or the same amount on their plate or anything else as anybody else. It's just that they've entered into the rest of God, and so they've got access to something which helps them, which helps sustain them and let them feel rested in other times that they would not feel rested. 
I don't know what it is that you came in here with today. Maybe you are in desperate need of a nap. Maybe you are um, stressed and anxious. Maybe you are like some of these Israelites that are right here, included in the covenant community of people, but you are in a perpetual state of restlessness and wandering. If any of that stuff sounds familiar to do, I think this is the psalm for you. This is what David is, this is what the psalmist is writing for in Psalm 95. So again, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Psalm 95 is where I want to be. Um, the question I want to look at first and foremost is, what kind of rest is he talking about in this passage? What kind of rest does he offer us, essentially? And how do you and I go and enter into that rest? There's a warning here in the, in the middle of the passage here that kind of lets us know a little bit of what he's talking about. But he says here in verse 7, he says, Today, if you would only hear his voice, church, don't harden your heart to him. It's a warning we need to hold on to. He says, Today, if you would only hear his heart, don't if you'd only hear his voice, don't harden your heart to him. Don't harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness. Now, church, what's he talking about here, that day of Meribah, that day of Massah? Anybody know the story, the background, what he's referencing here? You can actually read about it in Exodus chapter 17. It's a fascinating story, but in Exodus 17, this is the first year after the Exodus from Israel. Uh, Moses, there's the, the ten plagues, there's the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, Moses has brought the people out of the land. They are wandering in the wilderness. They are on their way to the destination. God has promised to give them the promised land, which is the nation of Israel. They are about to go and inherit this land. Uh, so they've been set free. They're wandering in the wilderness. And they get to this point just after that takes place uh, where they're in the wilderness of sin, which is a terrible name for a wilderness. That's the literal name of the wilderness right there. Uh, the wilderness of sin, they're all thirsty, they are all hungry, they don't know where they're going because God is taking them to this destination and most of the people are left out in the dark. And so they're grumbling and complaining against Moses, going, Moses, what are you doing? Do you even know where you're taking us today? Is God going to provide for us or not? I thought you said God's hand was in this whole thing. And so Moses is all frustrated, and I love this in verse 4. He says, Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I supposed to do with these people? <laughs> I love that. And that's like honest leadership right there. Like, what am I, what am I supposed to do with these people right here? Like they're about ready to stone me, he says. And then the Lord answered Moses and he says this. He says, I want you to go out in front of the people. Take with, some, take with you some of the elders and the staff that you use to strike the Nile and go. I'll stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So it's exactly what Moses does. He goes and he gathers the elders, gathers all the people. He goes to the rock at Horeb and he goes and he stands before it and he strikes the, the rock and everyone drank. And it says in verse 7, that he called the place Massah, which literally means testing or proving, and Meribah, which literally means strife or contention, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, their God, that day, saying, is the Lord really here or not? It's what's behind this whole story. So it's the first part of what's going on here. That's what he's referencing here in this psalm. The second part is going to be uh, Numbers chapter 13. This is a little bit after Exodus 17, right? It's still the first year after the Exodus. They have finally made it to the edge of the promised land. Uh, this is the land that they've been traveling for uh, almost 40 days at this point in time. Uh, they're about to inherit the land. God has said, I want you to go in. I will give you victory over the people, and you will inherit the land. And so the promise is there. They get to the edge. Moses sends 12 spies into the land and says, okay, I want you to go figure out what's going on and bring us back a report. You remember what happens here? Ten of them come back, and... Uh, Caleb, Caleb and Joshua, they're believing God, saying, great, let's go take it. Ten of them come back and they say, you know what, Moses? Um, those guys are kind of big. They're kind of big. They're huge. They're giants. They got, they got, they got chariots. They got, they got so many resources. They got so many different things that are going on right here. Uh, those things are kind of big. I'm not so sure that we'll have victory this day. 
And so God goes, okay, you don't want to trust me, then that's fine. But you don't get to inherit the land. You don't get to enter into my rest. And so for the next 40 years, the Israelites are going to wander in this wilderness as he says, this generation of unbelieving people will never be able to enter into my rest. And so they wander in the, in the wilderness restlessly for 40 years, incapable of entering into his rest, meaning the fullness of God's promises, which he has promised to give. That's what we're talking about here when we talk about rest. So in Hebrews, Hebrews is going to pick up on the same idea. Ten different times, he's going to invite us to enter into his rest. He's going to say the promise of entering his rest, it still stands for you and me, these new covenant believers. In other words, it's not just a promise that was there for Israel. It's not just talking about literal physical land right here. Uh, but he's going to say, uh, but, but he's talking about essentially he's inviting us to inherit the fullness of God's blessing, which he has promised to give. In other words, he's inviting us to enter into his rest, the fullness of God's promises, which he's promised us under the new covenant law. And so that's why this is such a big deal right here. Church, like there's blessing at stake in this invitation here in this psalm. Like there's blessing that's going on here, right? He's inviting us to enter into his rest rather than continuing and wandering restlessly. He is inviting us to inherit the fruit of the Holy Spirit instead of just the knowledge of the Holy Spirit. He's inviting us to enter into this relationship whereby we inherit the fullness of his promises and he produces things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control inside of us rather than us just knowing about those different kinds of things and reciting them anytime. Like that's what's on the table when you and I enter into his rest. It's the peace of his presence all the time. It's the joy of his fellowship. It's the comfort and fellowship of the Holy Spirit in, even in seasons of sorrow. It's growing in love instead of indifference. It's joy instead of despair. It's peace instead of anxiety. It's patience instead of annoyance. It's kindness instead of rudeness. It's goodness instead of corruption. It's gentleness instead of bullying or abuse. It's faithfulness instead of fickleness. And it's self-control instead of self-destruction. In other words, church, like it's peace and unity in the home in as much as it depends upon you. Like it's a fruitful and God-glorifying life rather than a fruitless one. Like that's what this whole psalm is about. Church, don't miss, there's two kinds of believers that are being contrasted here in this psalm. Those who inherit the promises of God and those who don't. Like one of them is full of joy and gratitude and worship and the other is wandering in the wilderness and unable to find any rest. And the sad part is, church, that that rest was there for the taking. The promise was there. Go take the land. I will be with you. I will deliver the land. But the Israelites, the only thing they could see were giants. All they could see were how big those other people were. All they could see is the the advocate, the, the foes that were there. And so they did not believe and they did not enter into his rest. It's why he shifts from the psalm of praise to a warning here. It's why he goes from singing psalms of praise to this harsh warning. And he says, today, church, if you hear his voice today, don't harden your heart. If you ever hear your voice, not just today, you ever hear his voice, don't harden your heart as you did at Meribah. Otherwise, you will not enter into his rest. In other words, church, like the key to entering his rest, like it has everything to do with what's happening right here. The key to entering into that rest, it's got everything to do with your heart. It has everything to do with trust. Do you actually trust him or are we simply giving lip service to the songs that we are singing week in and week out? Do you actually believe him or have you hardened your heart to him like so many in Israel have done before? 
and like so many in Dallas, Texas, are continuing to do today, whereby we are Christians by association, but not Christians inside of our heart, and definitely not Christians in the way that we live. That's why the first part of this psalm is only worship. It's, it's why the first part of this psalm, it's all about worship. Church, like worship is a declaration of trust. It's what it is. This is a declaration of trust. I love that Caleb went there with it because uh, we didn't even plan that, but that's, exact, we're on this, I, that's what worship is. Worship is a declaration of trust that says, he alone is Lord. I'm not Lord here. He alone is God, and I'm totally and completely surrendered to his authority in every bit of my life. Like in verse 6, he's going to say, come, let us bow down and worship him. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. The word that he uses for worship literally means to lower yourself and to bow in reverence to someone who's a superior or in authority over you. So three different times he's referencing, when we come in here and we gather to worship, you are to lower yourself. You're to lower yourself. You're to get down on the ground. You're to come in with a different posture than when you otherwise would have walked in. It's a different event. It's a different gathering that we've come to do. It's not like Tuesday morning. It's not like Wednesday at work. It's not like Friday night, date night or anything like that. This is a different thing where you come into this place and you lower yourself in reverence for who he is and understanding that he alone is Lord and that I'm not Lord at all. In the New Testament, the word literally means to lower yourself in such a way that you actually kind of blow kisses up towards someone in reverence. Well, the, the picture that's used there was often used of kings. They would come into towns. People would line the streets, and the king would come into town. They would put their forehead to the ground. They would lay prostrate before the king and they, in honor of who he was, and they would honor him. And in the moment of that honoring, the king would have total and complete authority over the entirety of their life. Church, that's what worship is. That's what we gather to do. We lower ourselves in honor of who he is. He alone is Lord. I am not Lord. He alone is king. I am not king. Church, that's what it means to worship. And the reason this is so critical for you and me entering into his rest is because worship is it's not just a declaration of faith, but it's also a demonstration of faith. It's not just a declaration of who he is, but it's also a demonstration of faith that continues to build our faith while you walk by faith and to express your faith all along. Like that's what we're doing. It's a cyclical thing that's going on here whereby we demonstrate our faith. It builds our faith while we walk by faith in order to express our faith. Church, we see this all the time whenever we come in here to worship, do you not? You come in here on Sunday morning and you know what? It's just one of these days I'm not really feeling it. I'm not feeling it. Like, like I'm not... I, my mind isn't where it needs to be. Like God is about this big. He's about as big as I am. I'm not seeing him on his throne. Right? I'm not believing these things. Like I'm not really feeling it. And then you come in and you say, okay, Lord, um, I'm going to have to sing by faith today. I'm going to have to sing by faith today. I'm going to have to give by faith today. I'm going to have to surrender to the preaching of God's word by faith today. I don't want to. My heart's not fully there. But you begin to enter into worship through an act of faith. And sometime in the middle of the singing, God does a work where he meets you in there. You get this vision of God that is much more grandiose than you had previously in your heart. You begin to see that he alone is king, that he is on his throne. Your heart begins to catch up and you start singing in joy. Whereas in the beginning, you weren't singing in joy. Like that's how worship begins. It begins as a demonstration of faith, and we begin walking by faith. And in the middle of that place, God does this work where he starts to build your faith. It's why this whole thing is so central in our ability to enter into his rest. And so the psalmist begins here with this call to worship. Uh, the, the whole thing, it's a call to worship. And what I love about what he does here at the beginning, he doesn't just start with the emotions. It's not an emotional frenzy. It's not this stirring of affections to try to, to try to get you to some emotional high or something like that. Like the whole thing begins with this declaration of who he really is. 
verse 1, he says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. There is emotion there. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Like, that's who he is. That's what I'm coming in today. I know who my God is. He is the rock of my salvation. That's who he is. He's got a name. He's got a reputation. He's got works that he's done. That's who he is. He is the rock of my salvation. So the reason I'm able to sing with joy, when I sing with joy, the reason I'm able to emote, the reason I I feel compelled to lift my hands or to kneel down or to sit in silence or to weep sometimes, the reason we do these different kinds of things is because I know who he is. He is the rock of my salvation. He's steady. He's the firm foundation from which I stand every single day. That's who he is. Like It is certain there. By the way, church, this is not how Israel knew their God. They did not know that he was the rock of their salvation. It's why they grumbled and complained all the time. Is he really trustworthy? I don't know. Does he know where he's taking us? Does he have a plan for our life? Is it really for our good? Is it really for his glory? Come on. It's why they're grumbling and complaining so much. I mean, after, listen, to, I mean, after 10 plagues, after a miraculous deliverance through the parting of the Red Sea, which crushed their enemies, after wandering in the wilderness and bread and manna and provision coming to them, after striking a rock, water coming out and, and providing for a thirsty nation, they're still sitting there kind of going, I, I don't know if he's trustworthy. I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know. He's not, I don't know if he's the rock of my salvation. Maybe that's just a one-time thing. You know the sad part of Israel's story? It seems like they never really learned. And granted, we have the benefit of hindsight. They're going through it for the first time. They don't have a lot of the privileges that we have today. But it seems like they never learned. They never understood fully who he actually was in such a way that led to real trust, in such a way that let them uh, enter into the spiritual uh, rest that God offers in, in, in Hebrews. In fact, about 39 years after Exodus 17 takes place, pretty much the exact same occurrence happens. You know, there's some, don't get confused between these two stories. Exodus 17 is very different than Numbers chapter 20. It's about 39 years after that incident takes place. They're already in the middle of their wandering. They have not inherited the promised land, right? So they are wandering. They come to the same place. They're in the desert of Zin this time, which is a little bit different than the desert of Sin. However, um, they're thirsty. They're grumbling and complaining, going, can I trust this God or not? And Moses does the same thing. Okay, Lord, what do you want me to do for these people? And the Lord tells them to do a very, very similar thing with one seemingly minor difference which is actually very very major instead of striking the rock this time what i want you to do is i want you to go to the rock and i want you to speak to it in front of everyone and as you speak to it in front of everyone i will provide water for everybody so this is exactly what he does he goes there and he he stands in front of the rock he gathers the whole people together but i don't know if moses is just having a bad day this day he's not really feeling it or whatever it may be maybe he's just kind of going back to old patterns and old habits or whatever it may be But instead of speaking to the rock like God had told him to do, he takes his staff and he strikes it again just like he had done 39 years earlier. And the beautiful part of the story is that by God's grace, he still opens up the rock. He still allows water to flow. He still uh, satisfies the thirst of a nation. However, as a result of that, because Moses did not trust him and did not take him at his word, he too would be barred from ever entering into his rest. And so instead of Moses and Aaron being able to lead that next generation into the nation of Israel, into victory, into the promised land, into his rest, that task and that glory would be given to Joshua one day, all because he decided to strike a rock rather than speak to it. Does that seem harsh to anybody? You ever wonder why why it is such a big deal? 
The reason it's such a big deal, Paul's going to pick up on this in 1 Corinthians 10. Follow me here. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's going to be talking about the exact same story that's going on. He's going to say this. He's going to say, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In other words, our fathers were there with Moses when they went through the Red Sea in that wilderness experience right there. And then he says in 3, he says, they all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, church, the reason it's such a big deal is because that entire scene at Meribah was a picture of the gospel. It was a picture of Jesus who would only be struck once that we may be able to drink from the fountains of living water forever and ever and ever and ever. It's why Hebrews is going to come along a little later on and he's going to say, Jesus is the better everything. He's the better Moses. He's the better Joshua. He's the better mediator between God and man. Because unlike any other high priest, Jesus didn't have to offer sacrifices day after day after day after day because his sacrifice was sufficient once and for all. Church, like that's why Moses could not strike that rock again. The entire thing was supposed to be the picture of Jesus being struck down once and his sacrifice being sufficient once and for all that you and I may be able to drink from the fountain of living water now and for all of eternity. Like that's what's going on, church. So here's what happens. Joshua gets to lead the next generation in because we are not allowed to enter into his rest through strength and through might like Moses tried to do, but only through the better and more faithful Joshua, Yeshua, whose name's transliterated in the Greek, literally spells Jesus and literally means Jehovah saves. Church, my point in all this is that that's who we're singing to in this psalm. That's who we know when we sing, like he's the rock of my salvation. He's got a history there. He's got a reputation. He was faithful in the garden. He was faithful with Noah. He was faithful with Abraham. He was faithful with the Israelites. He was faithful with David. He's been faithful into the new covenant. That's who he is. He is the rock of my salvation. Like I was lost and I was dead in the middle of my sins, but God in his infinite love sent his one and only son, Jesus, to be struck down in my place once and for all that I would be able to enter into his rest now and for all of eternity. Church, like that's who he is. So yeah, he's a way maker. He's a way maker because he made a way when there was no other way. He's the miracle worker who splits the sea and makes water pour out from a rock. Like he's the promise keeper who keeps all of his promises. Like even when I don't, he, he's the light in the darkness when I can't see anything that's going on whatsoever. Verse three, he's gonna say, he is the great king who's above all other gods. That's who he is. In other words, like there is no other God who can stand in his presence, not the God of money, not the God of fame, not the God of self, not the God of beauty or sex or comfort or people pleasing or safety or control or anything else. There is no other God who can stand in his presence. Verse 7, he's going to say, he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the flock underneath his care. In other words, church, like he's the great shepherd. He is the good shepherd and we are the sheep who are under, underneath his care. Like it's who he is. He knows when we're missing. He knows when we're gone and he'll leave the 99 to go chase after the one. He knows when the enemy's attacking. He knows when you're crying. He knows when you're scared. He knows when you're under attack and he's still there over and over and over again. He knows like when I have no idea where to go, he knows where to go because that's who he is. He is the great shepherd. We are the sheep that are underneath his care. Church, it's why we sing with joy. It's why there's, there, there's emotions all throughout these songs. It begins with a declaration to hear who he is. We meditate on these realities. This is who he is. There's a history here. There's faithfulness here. There's character here. There, there, there's sovereignty here. There's beauty here. There's power. There's authority. There's glory. That's all here. And as we meditate upon these things, like joy erupts 
as we recognize who he is and who we are now in light of who he is. Church, he's not distant or made up. Like we know exactly who he is. He is the rock of our salvation. It's why we sing and it's why we sing with joy. Never forget a number of years ago, having a great conversation with one of my barbers I used to have a long time ago. Um, I was doing a fade at that time. People were like, why do you need a barber? Anyway, um, so I, I was going to a barber at the time, and, and a, she had the same response. Well, she asked me what I do, and I'm like, I'm a pastor, Dallas Bible Church, and it, you always get great responses whenever you tell people you're a pastor. They either hate you immediately or else you got a lot to talk about, right? And so, um, and so I'm like, all right, I don't know. Well, this is going to go one or two ways here. And so I'm like, yeah, I'm a pastor at Dallas Bible Church. She's like, oh, you're a pastor? Really? You don't look like a pastor. I get that one a lot, too. I don't know what pastors are supposed to look like, but I guess you're supposed to have your shirt tucked in or something. But um, anyway, and so she's like, you're a pastor, huh? So is your church one of those singing and hand-raising churches? Because I like church. I can do church a whole lot, but I don't know, I don't, I don't know about all that singing and hand-raising stuff. And I kind of laughed. I've, I've heard that one a few times and stuff before, too, but... I kind of laughed. I was like, yeah, singing? Absolutely, yeah. We're absolutely singing. Hand-raising, and some of us are hand-raisers, that kind of thing. Not everybody is, but, but that kind of thing. And I go, you know, I think I, I think I, I think I probably need to tell you a little bit about why we are the way that we are. I was like, yeah, we're, we're absolutely a singing and hand-raising church, but uh, there's a reason we are a singing and hand-raising church, and it's re- there's a reason why I'm a singing and hand-raising pastor and, and that kind of a thing. And so we had an incredible conversation, and I got into my story a little bit, and I began to tell her about Jesus. I began to tell her a little bit about God's grace and how I was raised in a, in a Christian family, came to faith at an early age, was raised in a religious home, and by, by my teenage years, I was on the path to becoming an incredibly uh, self-righteous religious person. And in the middle of that place, God blew up my whole world when he, when he showed me the beauty of the gospel, when he taught me about grace. And he showed me that even in my self-righteousness, that I was loved and that I was seen and that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient once and for all, that I may be able to enter into his rest. And I just began to share my story with her and go into that whole thing and just to amplify the beauty of God's grace and, and all these different kinds of things. And I love what she had to say at the end of our conversation. We just get done talking about it. And she goes, oh, I get it now. I, I get the hand-raising thing. And I said, yeah. Here it is, church, like when, when you don't know who he really is, worship is never going to make any sense. If you don't know who he really is, then worship is never, ever, ever going to make sense. You're going to come in and you're going to be like, what are, we, what are those people like, what's the hand raising? Like, what, why are people kneeling? Why are people crying? Well, why would you do that? What's wrong with you? What, what's wrong with you? Like, why are people getting excited? Why aren't they, like, why are they, like, are they just trying to show off? Are they just trying to show off? Are they just trying to make a scene? Like, what's, what's going on here, church? If you don't know who he is, worship will never, ever, ever make any sense to you. Here's who he is. He's the rock of my salvation. He's the one that I stand in. He's the one who's been faithful time and 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 time again. He's the one who broke a cold-hearted, self-righteous, religious person and softened his heart with the gospel of God's grace. That's who he is. He is the rock of my salvation. And if you do not know who he is, worship will always, always, always be a confusing experience for you. Israel knew about God. They knew that he existed. They believed in him, much like most of America. We know that, yeah, he probably exists. They didn't know that he was the rock of their salvation. And so they doubted his ability to provide, and they did not enter into his rest. And for some of us, this is exactly our experience today. We know a little bit about God. We've heard about him. We believe in the generics about him. We do not know who he truly is. And church, if that is you, 
Worship will always, always, always be a confusing experience. So I love what the psalmist does next. He gives you an invitation. And it's a very, very simple invitation. Three different times he simply says, come, come. Come, let us sing to the Lord, to the rock of my salvation. Let us come into his presence. It is what we are doing, church. We are coming into his presence. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving in our hearts. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel and let us rest before the Lord, our God, our maker. In other words, church, if you actually want to be able to enter into his rest, then you've got to be willing to come and rest at his feet, at the feet of your maker. If you want to be able to enter into his rest, then you've got to be willing to come and rest at the feet of your maker. Like that's what worship does, church. Like it, is, it is a declaration of trust. It is that. It is a declaration of trust that begins in the knowledge of who he really is, but it continues as a demonstration of trust by coming to Jesus with nothing else on the agenda except rest. In fact, it's, it's so central to what God wants us to do. He actually made it one of the Ten Commandments. Right? Have, you, have you thought about this? Have you ever thought like one of these is not like the other, right? You're like looking at the Ten Commandments, you're like, what is, what is going on with this? Like the Sabbath rest, is that big of a deal? Really? I, I mean, it's, it's up there with idolatry and graven images and not taking the Lord's name in vain and honoring your father and mother and murder and adultery and stealing and lying and covetousness. You're like, what's, what's up with this? I mean, it's right there. Deuteronomy 5, observe the Sabbath day, keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you to do. Six days, church. You're to labor. Six days you've got to do your work. Do all your work, but on that seventh day, it's a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall rest and not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or female servant or your ox or donkey or any other cattle or sojourner who stays with you, covering all the groundwork there. Why? So that your male and female servants may rest as well as you. In other words, at the front end of this commandment is a very, very simple reality that, that you, in order, if you actually want to feel rested, then you actually need to take rest. At the front end of this command is the reality that, that God has uniquely wired all of us to need rest and for us to function best is that we need to be able to take a rest in his presence. It's how he's wired us to work. And so I think, I think we get that point. It's on the front end of this thing. But he keeps going because then he continues to say, okay, well, the real reason that I want you to go and observe a, fa- observe a fa- Sabbath rest, observe a, a Sabbath rest is this in verse 15. You need to remember, church, that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and that your Lord, your God, brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord, your God, commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. In other words, church, the entire point of taking a Sabbath rest, not working, taking a day away and saying this entire day is dedicated to you, is that you and I would remember that he's the one who did everything when it comes to the salvation of my soul and the provision of my life on a day-to-day basis. Church, literally, he has done everything. What did you have to do with the salvation of your soul? Like, what did you have to do with any of it? Like, literally, he's the one who spoke and the world came into being. He's the one who speaks and universes come into being. He's the one who sent Moses. He's the one who, who sent the plagues. He's the one who parted the Red Sea. He's the one who provided manna and meat from heaven. He's the one who provided water from the rock. He's the one who provided Jesus, the rock of our own salvation, from whom flow streams of living water. He's the one who came to us. He's the one who lived a sinless life. He's the one who suffered and died. He's the one who conquered the grave. And he's the one who washes our sin away. Literally, church, all we have to do is receive what he's already done. That's all we do. All we have to do is receive what he's already done on our behalf. It's why the act of rest is an act of worship. It's a demonstration of trust that says, not only are you the center of my life, that I'm coming back to you and I'm beginning my week every single week in recognition that you alone are Lord and that I'm not working or any of these other kinds of things, but I'm literally resting at your feet and trusting you for everything. All of my refreshment, it comes from you. 
Like the hope of my salvation, it is all on you. Even the provision for my day-to-day, like I'm trusting you totally and completely for you. Like what makes sense is that I'm going to work seven days a week. What makes sense is that I'm going to work 80 to 100 hours a week. If I keep working that hard, then I'm going to provide all the more. I'm going to have more money. I'm going to have more provision. I'm going to have more comfort. I'm going to have more safety. That's the thing that makes sense. You want me to take a day off of work every single week? Are you kidding me? Like that doesn't even make any sense, which is exactly the point because it'll never, ever, ever make sense unless you believe that he is the one who provides for you and you're not providing for yourself. It's the whole point of this psalm. It's the whole point of this psalm. Do you really believe that he's a great king above all other gods? Or are you living for the God of, of money or power or esteem or reputation or safety or comfort or self? Do you really believe that he's a great king that's above all other gods? Do you really believe that in his hands are the depths of the earth? Do you really believe that the heights of the mountains are his, verse 5, and that the sea is his, and that his hands form the dry land? Church, the whole thing is about trust. Do you actually believe that he's the one who provides? Or do you really deep down inside believe that that I'm the one who provides for myself? Church, if you believe that he's the one who provides, then you'll come to him church, do you believe that he is the one who satisfies? If you believe that he's the one who satisfies, then you'll, you'll come to him and you'll rest in him. If you really believe that he loves you and he knows your needs and cares about him more than you do, if you believe that, then you'll, you'll come to him and you'll rest in him. If you really believe that his plans for your future are better than your own plans, if you actually believe that then you'll come to him and you'll be able to rest. If you actually believe that he loves your children more than you love your children, if you believe that, then you'll be able to come to him and you'll be able to rest. If you really believe that your money is better in his hands than in your own, if you do, then you'll come to him and you'll rest. You'll give, you'll live a generous life. If you really believe that he's the one who provides, that he alone is Lord, then I'm not that he's the good shepherd and that I'm the sheep that are underneath his care, then church, you and I will come to him and we'll worship him and we'll rest at the invitation that he has made for us. Church, if you do, then you will come to him. Do not hedge your hope in money. There's an image that I clung to earlier that I didn't read, but I'll share it with you. And uh, I was reading this article about this guy who wrote a story about how uh, the first time that he found rest on a merry-go-round he was telling this funny story because he's like, I'm, I'm scared of merry-go-rounds. I don't like roller coasters. I don't like all these things. It's the problems that I'm a dad. I have a couple of rambunctious kids. They love rides and all these things. And so every time I go and see these carnivals and stuff like that, he's like, it terrifies me. I hate riding these rides. And so he tells the story of going to Central Park and riding on the merry-go-round there. And he's like, I'm, I'm scared about it. I got sick. Like the, the little bit of motion, it really messes with me and everything. He's like, it was terrible. So we get off the ride and like sitting there on, on top and they're begging me to get on down. He's like, do it again, just do it again. He goes, the operator was looking and he could tell what was going on and, and he, he knew I didn't want to go. And so I finally go up to the operator and he says, uh, and he says I need, you got to tell me what's going on. You got to tell me what's going on. How do you, how do you ride this ride every, all the time? You ride it in all the lanes. He goes, I just don't know. Scared of the snakes. Scared of the snake bites. Scared of the snake bites. 